Thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today I'm speaking with Jay Jordan, Associate Professor of Writing and Rhetoric Studies, about the novel A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. A few years ago, Professor Jordan recorded himself reading the entire book for his son while he was away working at the Utah Asia campus in South Korea. We'll discuss that experience and we'll get to hear a few of his favorite excerpts. We're going to use our time today to hear some of your favorite selections from the book. But first, tell me why you decided on a Christmas carol to record for your son. I don't know that there was a particular um, just like reason that came to me. I mean, I, I, I'll say just in general that, that Christmas definitely carries a lot of nostalgia for me. I grew up um, with parents, both of whom were church musicians, and my mom still is. And so Christmas was just a really big production, among other things. You know, I was, they were both involved in, in just producing special music around the Christmas holidays at both their churches. But also, uh, my mom's side of the family in particular is really big, and we would get together usually around Christmas or the days after in South Carolina, where she was originally from, and there would be all these cousins I hadn't seen at any other time during the year, and aunts and uncles, and just a huge extended family on that side. So there were, you know, Christmas was just like Christmas music, and and the idea of Christmas caroling was kind of like in my blood from the time I was really young, but also just the big family added that much more to Christmas. So it was it was just a huge event throughout my childhood, and um, in in a lot of ways, a Christmas carol. Uh, represents that kind of nostalgia because I think it's nostalgic for a lot of people. I mean, it's just it's it's a story that's traveled well. You know, a lot of people know it. Um, but but also as I've you know as I become more of like the the critically minded professor, you know, I've had a chance to like look back at that nostalgia and also realize that 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 there's a lot in a Christmas Carol that actually prefigures that nostalgia. It kind of sets up Christmas expectations in the mid-19th century for a lot of people in Great Britain. That's really fascinating as well. So it's like it, it sort of cuts both ways. I'm nostalgic about it, but also it gives me an opportunity to be critically nostalgic about it. But it's also something that's just like it's set up in a way, you know, just the way the the, the chapters lay out or the staves lay out. It's set up in a way that you can record it in in bits and share it. And so I was like, Okay, it kind of makes sense. I'll I'll record it for my son, and right. and we'll see what he thinks about it. So, what did your son think about it? Because he was, you said he was nine. He was nine at the time. Yeah. And, and so, what did he think? He, um, I think he thought it was a little cheesy at first. You know, he, um, he and my my partner were actually coming to visit me while I was in Korea in January between the two semesters. But this was like end of November, beginning of December. It was getting really dark there, really cold. And so I was feeling a little separated, you know, from yeah. my family and thought, okay, I need to do this for myself as much as for him. So I started recording it and just like started sending it to him, you know, like in episodes as I was, as I would record them and I'd share them with him online. And he didn't, I mean, he, he kind of said, okay, yeah, thanks dad. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really think about it for a number of years and literally, I mean, probably a month or so ago, and he is almost 17 now, he came to me and he said, I don't even remember what what prompted this. He said, "You know, I really, I really appreciate that you recorded a Christmas Carol for me. It was it, it's something that I still remember." And yeah, it was one of those moments where you know you have a, a a teenager, like a late teenager, 
And a lot of the time, he's just going to do things that 16-year-olds do. Right. And you kind of roll your eyes about it. But but every so often, he'll say something or do something, and you're like, wow, you know, you're kind of like growing into being a whole person. And that right. was just one of those moments. And I thought I was really touched by that. So I thought, ah, oh, that's, that's sweet. And it's also one of those moments where you don't realize the things that you are doing in the now impact your kids in the future. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like you just, you never know what they're going to remember as they get older. That's right. Like you, you, there, there are things that you do in the moment that you think are going to have an effect. And maybe they do, but there are, you're right, a lot of other things that you do that seem like, oh, okay, this might be fun. But it's like, wow, I really remember when you gave yeah. me that tiny little wind-up car right. or something like that. That was just, and I was like, I wouldn't tell him this, but, you know, it's like, that was an afterthought. Like, I was leaving the store on Christmas Eve, and I was like, that's cute, grab it, and put it in the stocking. And that's the thing he remembers. Right. So, yeah, that's part of the fun of parenting. <laughs> It's one of the scary parts too. It is, yeah, <laughs> right, right, because you're like, mm, this is—is is this going to happen? Are we going to have to—is this going to have to come up, you know, later with a professional in the room or something? Right. I, you know, but but so far, no, we've been able to escape a lot of that. How long did it take you? So you did it in episodes, yeah, kind of. Yeah. So how long? How long did it take you to do the recording? And then how long did it end up being total at the very end? Do you remember? Oh wow, I don't remember. Um, yeah, I, I probably did the recordings over the course of about a week while okay. I was in Korea. Um, it was it was toward the end of the semester, and that that first semester, I mean, it was the first semester of the campus's operation. So there were not a lot of people on that campus at all. I mean, it was very big and very empty feeling, and so the teaching had had pretty much wound down, and so I had time you know, but also just a lot of time to myself going, you know, I need to do something because I'm not traveling and what are we going to do? So it took about a week and, oh, I'd have to look back to see how long it okay. it actually ran. I mean, yeah, I don't remember. It's a good and question. Do you still have the recordings? I think I still have the recordings. I think they are sitting somewhere on Google Drive, okay. if I remember correctly. I actually started re-recording it um, okay. the other night. And I don't exactly know why I started doing that. I mean, the, I, 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 it, it may have something to do with my own nostalgia, you know, actually reading it. Um, I, I mentioned to you before that, you know, both my parents were church musicians, which means they were performing in church a lot. I grew up around that. My dad was a radio broadcaster. And so, and he's, he's in assisted living now. And he doesn't really communicate very much. So I think that part of re-recording it has to do with, you know, re remembering and being nostalgic about hearing his voice. Because I've had people say that, you know, my voice carries, his voice carry would, would carry like 10 times as much as mine would. I mean, you could not, you could not not hear dad. Didn't matter if he was in public or at home, you know, so I, I miss that. And I think maybe that's why I was re-recording it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's, um... Go ahead and read. I'll have you read your uh, the first selection that you have chosen uh, to read to our listeners today, and then we'll kind of discuss it a little bit. Yeah, sure. So this is right as the very beginning of the story, as we are meeting Scrooge for the first time. So it's a description of Scrooge and what's all surrounding him. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already, 
It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. And then I skip a bit to continue that description. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened so that people ran about with flaring links, proffering their services to go before horses and carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of a church whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a Gothic window in the wall became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds with tremulous vibrations afterwards as if its teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street at the corner of the court, some laborers were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water plug being left in solitude, its overflowings suddenly congealed and turned to misanthropic ice. The brightness of the shops where holly sprigs and berries crackled in the lamp heat of the windows made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Poulterers and grocers' trades became a splendid joke, a glorious pageant, with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor, in the stronghold of the mighty mansion house, gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as a Lord Mayor's household should, and even the little tailor, whom he had fined five shillings on the previous Monday for being drunk and bloodthirsty in the streets, stirred up tomorrow's pudding in his garret while his lean wife and the baby sallied out to buy the beef. It creates such a clear picture yeah, it really does. in your head. Yeah, it really does. And so does. you can sit yeah, there and yeah. imagine every the story as it's going on. So what about this part of the book resonates with you? A Christmas Carol, I think, really has been popular over the years because it's sort of a ghost story. In fact, that's that's the the billing of it, you know. It's it's Scrooge being visited by these three spirits and it's been the story's been repurposed so many different ways. So it's popular in a lot of ways as a metaphysical story. But I really found myself being drawn to the parts of the story that are really physical and material descriptions, you know, because I think that in some ways gets undersold. Mm-hmm. And and I was conscious as I was reading this the first time as I was recording it from my son, you know, years ago, I was thinking, you know, he grows up in, uh, he's, he's grown up in Salt Lake City. We can have bad air quality sometimes. You know, we see something like this, maybe not as extreme right. as, you know, London in the 1840s when everybody was burning coal to keep themselves hot, you know, um, but, um, but, but something similar, you know, in winter, air can get pretty bad here. And I, I remember thinking, I don't know if he notices that yet, but it is going to be something that he does notice. And I wonder if the fact that he's growing up here will make those scenes hit differently for him than they did when I was growing up. Because, I mean, I, I had heard readings of this. I had seen productions of A Christmas Carol when I was growing up, you know, in like plays or in movies or things like that. But that never really stuck with me because I didn't live in an area that was a subject to inversions as Salt Lake City is. So that's just, it, you're right, it's a really palpable description. It's like, yeah, the brown air, you can't really see down the street. You know, it was like it, it, it created sort of a scene for Christmas 
but at the same time, it's kind of gross yeah. to think about. Like everyone's like beating their chest to try to like cough up whatever it is that they're breathing in from the from the coal. Um, you know, so so and and then I mean, even in recent years, I've thought I've looked back at particularly, you know, just like nostalgic Christmas decorations or cards or images, even the images that are actually in the original right. um, Christmas Carol from 1843, and seen you know candles that are like that have the halo around them. And I realized you don't really get that halo unless there's just like something hanging in the air. So it's 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 both. I mean, it's it's nostalgic, but also you know, you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So both of those things together, I think, are really are really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like if you, in growing up in Salt Lake, you can you have that visual in your head yeah. of the air. I mean, if you're growing up somewhere else, yeah, you don't know, even know what it looks like. But when you're reading it to me, I can clearly see yeah what that air looks like and yeah. how that kind of feels and how it especially feels when it's dark and gloomy kind yeah, of yeah yeah and, and you're like oh wow you know sounds familiar yep. where if, if i mean i grew up in in eastern north carolina you know close enough to the coast that there was the air was always moving around it was pretty flat and you know so i never had this experience i never bad air was never a thing that weather forecasters talked about it was never something that was in the news you know it was always something that happened somewhere else you know somewhere else in in the world so um that yeah i think you're right i think it hits different for someone who Mm -hmm. grows up here and so let's have you uh read the next expert excerpt (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that uh, that you uh prepared today yeah so this one is also i think really physical but in a, in a really different way. And this is a little bit later in the story. Scrooge is kind of making the rounds of his own memories with the spirit of Christmas past. And one of the memories is of the, uh, basically the, the house where he was, or the business where he was himself an apprentice many, many years ago. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like 50 stomach aches In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast, substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door, but one who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couple at once, hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again as soon as they got there, all top couples at last, and not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig, clapping his hands to stop the dance, cried out, Well done! And the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home exhausted on a shutter, and he were a brand new man resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there was nagus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. 
But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled when the fiddler, an artful dog mind, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could have told it him, struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple, too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. Sounds like a party. Yeah, that's a party. And this is something that, you know, I, I, I told you, full disclosure, listeners, I am not a Victorianist um, or, or a, a scholar of Dickens, you know. So I, I went looking around for a couple of my colleagues in the English department, and I found, I will credit her, I will credit my colleague and friend Jessica Straley, who's a professor of English and who is a Victorianist, among many other things that she does. And so I talked with her a little bit about this, and one of the things that she pointed out to me was... I mean, in, in one sense, it's obvious, but it's something that we can tend to forget, you know, in being caught up in the holiday, those folks who do celebrate Christmas or at least recognize it, that it's not as if it was always like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it came from somewhere. These traditions that we have came from somewhere. So one of the things that I think a lot of folks just assume these days is that Christmas is a children's holiday. It kind of makes sense because the, the, you know, the Christian celebration of the holiday focuses on the arrival of a child and kind of a miraculous child. So, of course, it's always been about children. No, not really. You know, as recently as it turns out, um, mid-19th century England, a lot of the Christmas celebrations were really adult celebrations. That's what this is. There aren't any kids at this party. If they are, they're like around the edges trying to sneak in and they're being shushed yeah. and, and sent out. There's drinking, there's flirting, there's all this dancing, there's, you know, God knows what goes on in the after party, you know? Right. Like, it's it's a pretty bawdy scene in a lot of ways. So it's, it's you know, it, th- things have been different over the years about Christmas. Incidentally, another thing that, that Jessica mentioned to me was that Christmas trees were still kind of a weird thing. There, there weren't so much Christmas trees in England, even at this period. If you look in the, the, original, you know, the original illustrations of A Christmas Carol, this scene where you know, Scrooge is remembering his old boss, Fezziwig, and how jolly he was around the holidays, there are a couple things that you see. There's a, there's a scene of Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig, and then there's like a bit of greenery that's like suspended from the ceiling. It sort of looks like it might be a Christmas tree, but it's probably not at the same time like it's a I guess it's like a proto Christmas tree or something but so so that hadn't happened just yet it turns out that Queen Victoria who had just ascended to the throne only a few years before uh, her husband was German that was just one of those marriages that was you know intended to preserve empires and preserve relations and he hadn't yet brought over the Christmas tree just yet there was I think a holiday card that went out to whoever a couple of years later that showed Victoria and Albert in front of a Christmas tree. And that was really the first time that a Christmas tree had been depicted in England. And then it became a tradition after that, but it was imported from Germany. And of course, it wasn't like a Christian tradition. I mean, greenery has been around for a very long time, ever since this was like this pagan holiday, you know. So yet one more thing that Christians borrowed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put it charitably. You know, as as someone who grew up in church, I can just I, can, I guess I'll say that. But um, but but you know, there there are just a lot of reminders. I think in that scene that um, that that Christmas has been celebrated in a lot of different ways. Right. It's evolved a lot over the years, and but also, I mean, just 
like, you know, obviously in a very different way, materially and physically, from the previous scene I read, that is also a really, really physical scene. People, there's a lot of movement, and particularly the figures of Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig in the illustration, they're big people. You know, they're extremely well-fed people. They're well-dressed people. And so there's a very stark contrast between the way they are depicted mm-hmm. and the way, for instance, the Cratchit family is depicted. Right. So, you know, there's there's lots more to say about that, I'm sure. Absolutely. But that's another reason why that I think that scene sticks with me. Well, thank you so much thank for you. chatting with me today and giving me um, or reading some of those selections. And good luck on re-recording it yeah thank you we'll see how it goes i think that's a wonderful endeavor that was jay jordan associate professor of writing and rhetoric studies for more information about the college of humanities please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to humanities radio